Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher. Here in New York City, yes, my little jaunt to Florida is now complete. And I am very sorry, guys, but I really just don't have any interesting hands from that Escalator series uh, in which I participated. They were low-stakes tournaments. I tried not to bluff against players that I thought would call a lot. And so as a result, I don't really have any interesting hands. Um, I made it pretty deep in a couple of the events and basically came down to a coin flip at the end that I lost or one time just a kind of a cooler where with a medium short stack, I got it all in with queens and ran into aces. Not really a big deal. Um, so yeah, nothing really interesting to explore. Uh, although, if you listened to last week's episode with Jonathan Little, you did hear me refer to my general strategy in this type of tournament, uh, that being one of no bluffing. And Jonathan actually brought up a good point, which is that you might be able to be profitable bluffing on the river against opponents who don't fold enough on earlier streets. Uh, obviously the logic there is that they'll end up getting to the end with a lot of subpar hands that really can't afford to call a big bet on the end. But he also agrees, if you if you listened, he also agrees that generally bluffing in those uh, tournaments is not a profitable strategy at all. By the way, the feedback on that episode, this would be the episode from last week where I spoke with Jonathan Little at length about his general approach and what's kept him around in poker for so long. And he's had success over many, many years. And I concluded from that interview, let me know if you did also, I concluded that his success in the game is correlated to his love of teaching. So he's constantly learning because he has to be constantly coaching and teaching. And so then he's always on top of what's going on trend-wise and uh, what other uh, educators are doing. So I, I feel like it's one of the hidden benefits of being a teacher or a coach is that you stay on top of your subject in a way that people don't teach it, often do not. So... Uh, anyway, definitely check out that episode. Jonathan Little was a great guest and one that many of you have been asking for for quite a while. And best of all, he agreed to come back on to the podcast another time. So I'll certainly catch up with him uh, sometime in the in the coming months and we'll have him back on. Speaking of the coming months, uh, a lot has been going on around the uh, coronavirus and how it will, whether it will impact the World Series of Poker and other summer tournaments to which we all look forward. I want to talk about this, but 
I have to start off by saying I am not an expert. <laughs> I mean, far from it. What do I know about uh, the coronavirus or viruses in general or world health or anything of that nature? All I can tell you is I've been through bird flu, swine flu, mad cow disease, Ebola. It seems like every few years there is some kind of scare and we're all going to die. And then a few months later, you just don't hear about it anymore. Uh, I don't know if that means that the deadly disease continues and we just don't hear about it because that's how the news works now. Or more likely, my perception anyway, is that things peak and then they slow down. And what seems to be something that we all need to uh, shut down our lives and run out and buy a bunch of uh, surgical masks and three weeks supply of food for our uh, cupboards becomes uh, an afterthought yesterday's news. So look, I don't know how this will all shake out. I do find it fascinating that two of the most respected players in poker, Mike McDonald and Doug Polk, are both taking odds, uh, 16 to 1, 20 to 1, something like that, that the World Series of Poker will not happen at all. I find that interesting. Uh, there was a tweet by Sal Busaka. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right at Sal Busaka on Twitter, that has gone, I guess, semi-viral. Leaders in the poker world need to step up and start the discussion before players book expensive, non-refundable airfare. And I'm actually quite honored to be tagged <laughs> on this tweet along with some much more famous uh, leaders in the poker world. The problem is, if I am a leader in the poker world, which I definitely do not call myself, I don't know what I can contribute to this discussion. I mean, I'm obviously including it here on the podcast. Some people seem to think the WSOP will not happen this summer, and they're willing to bet serious money on that. I have not placed a bet. Uh, I tend not to try to go up against Doug Polk or Mike McDonald when I make wagers. You already saw how my going up against... David Tuckman turned out last year with Major League Baseball. Not good. <laughs> um, so I did not bet on this. But in my mind, I do not believe that the World Series of Poker will be canceled. There is too much involved in it. The number of cases in America, at least at this point, are relatively small. And I just don't see them canceling it. You know, this disease is present right now in our country and other countries, and yet poker tournaments continue to happen. I could be proven wrong. If so, I will be very sad because I'm so excited for the World Series of Poker, and so possibly this is all just wishful thinking on my part, but my opinion, and again, I have not put any money behind this opinion, is that they won't cancel the WSOP this year. I do believe that diseases should be taken seriously, and this is a serious disease. People are dying from it. That cannot be denied. I guess it will kind of depend maybe over the course of the next month or so how many more cases uh, sprout up around the USA 
where, as many of you know, not a lot of extensive testing is currently being done. We'll see. We shall see. Uh, But here's hoping that they get this thing under control. Everybody wash your hands and try not to touch each other too much. And hopefully uh, this will all go away before the summer. You know, please don't write me hate mail. I'm not a, a world health expert. And I don't mean to downplay the significance of this very serious problem. I just don't think that they will cancel the World Series of Poker because of it. All right, well, enough about coronavirus, okay? Let's get into our continuing, ongoing discussion of the World Series of Poker main event 2019. Today, I want to get into the final table. Now... Back in 2018, I got a fair amount of criticism that I was too aggressive um, and that I should have laddered up, maybe taken my medium stack and tried to get a little bit further. This was, of course, the year that I finished in 28th place. Yeah, and I accept that criticism. I do think that there's a lot to be said for laddering up and trying to get uh, a little bit more money. But my problem is that when I play any game, I try to win that game. And to me, winning means first place, coming out of it with a bracelet. On the hand that really uh, crippled me, if you will, I got outplayed by the eventual champion, John Sin. Uh, If you haven't heard my recap of all the major hands that I played in that World Series. Uh, just go back on this podcast, the archives, to uh, I would say maybe September, October, November of 2018. That's when I really got into what I did and why. And I even discussed a few of the key hands with uh, our good friend Andrew Brokus. But in reviewing this year's main event, I've noticed that players fold too much. I believe there is a strong case to be made for playing a more aggressive style than one would in, say, a more standard tournament. Certainly much more aggressive and taking way more risks than you should in the types of small stakes tournaments that I was playing in Florida last week. So today I want to look at a few of the hands that happen early at the final table. So, obviously, we're down to nine players. The blinds are 500,000 and 1 million with a 1 million big blind ante. Everyone at this table is uh, assured of at least a million dollar prize. And first place is 10 million. So, let's think about the difference there. If you are a medium stack and your options... Now, I'm going to oversimplify. Obviously, there are more options than just the two I'm about to present. But let's just suppose in some you know, bizarro world that your only two options are to fold, fold, fold and hope that other players bust or to play a very, very aggressive style and try to win the bracelet. Well, I mean, for me, it's a no-brainer because given that you've already locked up the million For me, it makes sense to try to go for the gold. And it's not just because of the $10 million for first place. It's being immortal in a real sense. Uh, As 
history continues and as life continues, people will always talk about, well, who won the main event? And we talk about, you know, 06, was that the Jamie Gold year? 03, was that the, was that the Chris Moneymaker year? And so on and so on. So for me, when I start to get close enough to smell that final table, I start thinking about, was that the Clayton Fletcher year? And all the other opportunities I could get to do speaking engagements as a champion, uh, to possibly appear on uh, The Tonight Show or whatever as a poker player. Uh, All of that stuff kind of influences my decision because what you end up winning is actually quite a bit more than $10 million. So in that sense, the WSOP main event is extremely top-heavy. And because players are folding too much, generally, with the attitude of laddering up, and because people have studied ICM, and in many cases make mistakes because they don't fully understand what ICM implies, playing an aggressive style at the WSOP final table, and even a few tables before that, is correct. So let's talk about what happens in this hand, because I'm about to contradict myself. With nine players remaining, one of our medium stacks, fifth in chips, is a player named Alex Livingston. He's got 37 million, so he's got 37 big blinds. And the way I look like to look at it is his M is about 15. And so three folds to him, he's in fourth position, holding the nine of hearts, eight of hearts. I think Livingston should just go ahead and fold this hand. But Clayton, you just said that playing a very aggressive style is correct at the main event final table and how can you now say that this player shouldn't be aggressively opening a suited connector in middle position well there's just too much that can go wrong number one hands like nine eight suited derive a lot of their value from winning big pots when they make hands like flushes and straights with an m of 15 37 big blinds We just don't have enough chips to be able to count on getting those implied odds. So it's close. I do think I would open this hand from late position, but I think here in fourth, just let it go and find a better spot. So notice that he raises to 2.4 million of his 37 million chips. Now that's a lot. And he's got a lot of hands to try to get through. Now he's fifth in chips, so that means sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth all have even shorter stacks than Livingston does. So if he ends up getting action from one of those players, he gets even lower implied odds on trying to flop a big hand with this. I mean, his best hope is to just steal the blinds and increase his stack by 1 15th, but I just don't think that will happen very often. And so I don't think this is an open. Now, certainly some of you will send me screenshots of your Pio solver work that proves this is an open and all of that. But let's keep in mind that the Pio solver model cannot possibly account for the tremendous implied odds of winning this bracelet. I believe this is a fold. Anyway, the way this hand plays out, One of the many players yet to act behind Mr. Livingston 
is Zen Kai in the big blind, who three bets to 7.7 million with 41 million behind. And now the action folds back to Alex Livingston getting roughly two to one on a call. But do you want to call even in position? In Alex's case, the answer is no. And I honestly can't blame him. If he calls this 7.7, then there's going to be about 16 million in the pot. And Livingston would only have less than 30 million remaining in his stack for an SPR of less than two. So what do you do if it comes eight high? Are we just supposed to go broke against Kai's overpair? Are we supposed to be able to fold a top pair when it might have something like a backdoor straight draw or flush draw or both? It's just not a good spot. And the likelihood of getting three bet is too strong to open nine eight of hearts from fourth position. So I'm not a fan of this play by Alex Livingston, who does decide to fold. By the way, Zenkai had pocket kings. After that, the players took what we call a TV break. So there was uh, something like a five-minute break so that they could show some commercials and then do a little break desk before they continued the action. And the blinds didn't change, so it was just uh, something they did for ESPN. So still 500K, 1 million, with 1 million big blind ante. And the very next hand, as it turns out, uh, our lone Serbian here at the final table, Milos Skrbek, under the gun, with only 20 million in his stack. He's got the second smallest stack, so he's currently eighth out of nine in chips. Opens under the gun with a min raise to 2 million with the king of clubs, 10 of clubs. Well, as many of you can probably imagine, I'm not a fan of this play either. I think when we get down to 20 big blinds or more substantially an M of eight, I don't think we should have a very large raise folding range because even a a minimum open, a min raise is going to cost me 10% of my stack. I need to be more decisive about the hands I play. I'm not saying you, you shouldn't have any raise folds in your in your range, but I don't think you should have any from under the gun. Too much can go badly for Skrbek. He's better off just throwing this hand away. Of course, two suited Broadway cards, the King Ten of Clubs, are very pretty to look at. And we do like to play them in a lot of other situations. But this is just not a good spot. I suppose his best hope is that someone will flat call and that he'll get to see a flop and then commit to this pot when he makes a pair or a draw. But I think many times, even when that happens, he'll end up being behind and need to suck out in order to win. His stack is so short as to be rather unmaneuverable in the event that he does get called and has to play a post-flop pot, especially given that he's under the gun and he will have to play such a pot from out of position. I think this is a pretty easy fold. When my M is eight, I'm looking to shove with a lot of hands. Uh, I think ace-queen under the gun, you can just go ahead and stick it in. Um, Probably also ace-jack, certainly ace-jack suited. 
pocket eights, pocket nines. All of these hands are strong enough at a nine-handed table to just open shove under the gun. The idea is you want to take it down, but if you are called, your hand is actually doing okay against the calling range that most of your opponents will show up with. Also, given that he's eighth in chips right now, he does need to do something and try to get something going. However, I don't think that he should force the issue here with the king-10 suited. I think he's much better off just folding it away. Instead, he opens for the min-raise, and he actually gets action from the tournament chip leader with 170 million, Hossein Ensign, who calls from middle position, actually with the king-queen of diamonds, which I think is a debatable play, uh, as we know that he does have um, Skurbeck beat and dominated. But generally, I think that uh, king-queen calling against undergun range, I think that both of these players should have folded their hands. And now it folds to my friend Gary Gates in the big blind, who three bets to 12.5 million. So now if you're Skurbeck, you've already put in 2 million of your 20 million, 10% of your stack, and now you have to fold. Now this will happen a lot because from under the gun, we don't know what other people are working with. Does Gates have a bluffing range here? You know what? Probably not. He's cashed a few times in the main event before, but he's not a professional player, and it's unlikely that he's going to three bet an under the gun raise and a call from middle position, which is fairly strong, by the chip leader. I just don't think that Gary Gates has a bluff raising range here. And I think that Skurbeck and Ensign both figured that out rather quickly as this hand was over. They both folded, and Gates wins a nice pot. So these are two hands in a row that end up being pre-flop hands, where the point that I was making a few weeks ago when we spoke with Andrew Brokus kind of illustrates itself when you open from early position and you don't have a great holding, a lot of things can go wrong for you. You want to just have the minimum, I guess you should say semi-bluffing hands pre-flop to make your under-the-gun raises a little less predictable. I don't think we need to include King-10 suited and I definitely don't think we need to include 9-8 suited. Especially with these stack sizes. If you want to talk about, I have 100 big blinds, my M is 40. Okay, now we can talk about it. But with these stacks, the shorter your stack gets, the more decisive you need to be in approaching your pre-flop decisions. So with an M of 8 under the gun, I don't have too many hands that I would be opening not planning to get all in. Okay, so let's fast forward maybe about 45 minutes later. Uh, the blinds are, are still 500,000 and 1 million with a 1 million big blind ante. And now we're down to seven players and the blinds are about to go up to 601.2. Seven players left in the tournament and our lone British player, Nick Marchington, opens from the cutoff with King Jack offsuit to 2.2 million with 38 million behind. 
Now he's got a medium stack here. He's in fourth place. Actually, the only players who have chips are Gates and Ensign, who have, between the two of them, 60% of all the chips in play, which is just absurd with seven players remaining. So pretty much everybody else is relatively short. But, you know, at this blind level, he's got 38 big blinds. His M is about 15 or 16. And he can certainly open with King Jack from the cutoff. I like this play by Marchington. On the button to Marchington's immediate left is Dario Sammartino, a very accomplished Italian professional, uh, a very active regular on the EPT, and no stranger to the World Series of Poker either. He's got a shorter stack than we do. He's got 33 million behind. And his M is about 13. He's got 33 big blinds. Dario three bets to 6.5 million. So the original bet was 2.2. And now Dario three bets to 6.5. I don't want to reveal Dario's hand just yet. Let's talk about this first. It folds all the way back to Marchington, who is now in a really, really ugly spot. King Jack is actually doing okay against most players' three-betting range. It's doing fine if we want to get all-in against pocket tens, which should totally three-bet here. Uh, against ace-queen, it's doing just fine. Against ace-ten suited, it's doing fine. And against all of Dario's bluffs, which will probably include hands like ace-five suited, everybody's favorite pre-flop three-bet hand, it's doing great. So... This is a really difficult spot, and especially given that there are three shorter stacks left in the tournament. Uh, Washington is just in a very, very difficult position holding the King Jack here. If you told me that he shoved, I would want to look at the math there. So when Washington makes it 2.2, at that point, there is 4.7 million in the middle. And when Dario re-raises to 6.5, at that point, there is 11.2 million in the middle. If Marchington chooses to now 4-bet all in, he actually wouldn't be putting himself all in. He'd just be betting enough that it would cost Dario all his chips to call. Uh, that would cost another 31 million and leave the pot at about 43 million and offering Dario pot odds of approximately two to one. So I like this play if Marchington wants to do it. Uh, the questions are, how often is Dario three betting light here? Earlier in the, in the previous hand, I talked about how I didn't think Gary Gates would have a three betting light range against the two opponents who have already uh, expressed interest in the pot. And sure enough, by the way, in that hand, I, I failed to mention, but Gates had pocket queens. In this spot, Marchington needs to ask himself, what are the chances that Dario is three-betting light? And think about it. If I shove here, Dario would have to call off all of his chips and risk going out in seventh place 
when he's currently fifth in chips. I think Dario would need an extraordinarily strong hand, probably queens, kings, aces, maybe ace-king, to make that decision where the prize difference between seventh place and fifth place is about a million dollars. And that's how a lot of people look at these decisions, and especially when there are two players at the table with less than 20 million in their stacks. It would kind of be a disaster for Dario to call and lose here against a shove. Obviously, the risk that Marchington would take if he shoves is that Dario is actually not three betting light and that he's got a hand to call with, one of those four hands I mentioned. I do think he would consider folding jacks. I do think he would consider folding ace-queen. And so it really leaves us with aces, kings, queens, and ace-king, and maybe even sometimes folding ace-king. The other way of looking at it is that I'd be laying, if I'm Marchington and I shove here, I'd be laying 31 million to win 11.2 million. So that's about three to one. And as we discussed when I first brought up the concept of the big squeeze, uh, I don't mind laying three to one to win a pot because increasing my stack by one third is always good, especially if I can do so without seeing a flop. As it stands, the three bet by Dario San Martino offers Nick Marchington about three to one, a little worse than three to one on a call. So that means he's almost priced in, even if he knows for a fact he's dominated. That, of course, assumes there will be no further betting, which is definitely not something we can assume. But just, you know, strictly mathematically, those are the odds against you when you are dominated. So in other words, if I could literally put Dario on ace-king, exactly, and I'm holding king-jack, I'm almost getting the right price to call. (laughs) The problem is, uh, Marchington will be out of position Uh, And there will be further betting in all likelihood. And with Dario being in position and probably at a higher skill level than Marchington, it's just not a spot you want to put yourself into. He's going to get outplayed too much. And so I don't think that calling, despite the good pot odds, I don't think that calling is an actual viable option here for Marchington. I think he's now in a shove or fold spot And I think that too many players just immediately fold in these situations. Now, I'm not saying that Marchington should have moved all in. I'm just saying there are merits to the play, particularly if he knows that San Martino is more than capable of three-betting light from the button. I don't think Nick Marchington gave much consideration to making the uh, all-in four-bet with King Jack offsuit. And really, we can't blame him. It is the main event, and doing those high-variance plays in the main event are often not correct, even if you do think they're plus EV at the time. So he lays down what turns out to be the better hand because Dario San Martino actually 3-bet to 6.5 million with King-10. One more note about this hand, and it may come as a surprise to some of you, but if I did have to get all in here, I'd rather be holding the king-jack of Nick Marchington, than a king-queen. And the reason for that is because ace-queen is a call in Dario's shoes, and we're doing much better against that hand with king-jack than we are with king-queen. 
I hope that makes sense to everyone. Nick folded, and I think that's totally fine, but I think that when we are in these high leverage situations in the main event, there's nothing wrong with looking for an aggressive approach. I mean, think of the spot that Dario would be in with much of his three betting range. If we now know that King 10 offsuit is in that three betting range, imagine how many other hands would just have to fold to a shove. So that'll do it for this episode. I hope you guys have enjoyed this little quick rundown of a few early hands from the first day of final table play at last year's World Series of Poker main event. And before we say goodbye today, I just want to take a moment here to thank you. A few weeks ago, I asked you guys to help us out by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you happen to download your podcasts. Uh, At that point, I was emphasizing that when you do that, it really, really helps us. You know, it helps us climb the ranks of poker podcasts. It helps us get more visibility and more listeners. And most importantly, it's a free way that you can, uh, you know, show your appreciation for the powers that be at TPE for making it possible for me to bring you this podcast each and every week. So uh, I'd like to take a moment now to read a recent review. I want to thank all of you for all of your reviews because it just means uh, so much and it is really helping in probably a much bigger way than any of you could possibly realize. So just a few weeks ago, this five-star review was left by a user named Utope Buzz. Um, it almost made me cry, <laughs> so I'm going to read it to you guys now. Clayton Fletcher has a passion for tournament play that shines through in this entertaining podcast. He reviews interesting hands that get me in the correct mind frame to play, and his periodic guests add significant value. Clayton does not claim to be the world best, world's best player, which I view as a positive, but he has accomplished deep runs in the WSOP main event, and his hand discussions are something I look forward to each week. Five stars. So, look, guys, we're reading the reviews, okay? And you can make me cry by saying nice things. Uh, It just matters so much. This is my favorite podcast, and I love that it is coming out weekly now. I hope it continues forever. Waldo, one, two, one, two. So, our podcast is getting good reviews, and we now have one of the highest-rated poker podcasts on iTunes. It means a lot. It really makes a difference. So if you are an an iTunes user or really any of the platforms, they all have their own reviews, uh, just leave us a good review. I promise to read all of them. I promise not to read all of them on the air. So please take the time to do that if you haven't done so already. And that'll be it for this episode. You guys are the greatest. For everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you all so much for listening.
Yeah. 